0: Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Ordinary people, extraordinary creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach Nancy Norbeck. Let's go! My guest this week is Carrie Malawista, a psychoanalyst and writer who uses writing to heal. She's the co director of the New Directions in Writing Project, which offers programs in writing from a psychological perspective. Her publication credits include The Washington Post. New York Times, and Delmarva Review, which nominated her for a Pushcart Prize. Her first novel, Meet the Moon, focuses on a young teen after the loss of her mother. Carrie talks with me about how she came to writing later in life, creating a writing program, The Things They Carry Project, to help healthcare workers cope with the pandemic, how she turned her own story of loss into a novel, how we perceive memory and truth, and more. Here's my conversation with Carrie Maloista. Carrie, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you for having me. So, I start everybody off with the same question Were you a creative kid, or did you discover your creative side later on?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because as a kid, I would have never called it creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my parents, I come from a blue collar background. And so we weren't exposed to the arts or music in those ways. So I never would have, no one would have ever used the word. So um, I think I was someone who always though had projects and was working on things. And um, my parents gave the idea, you can do anything you set your mind to and encouraged ideas, which in the end really were creativity, but I would never have thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I was writing or doing any of the traditional things but you know my mother always was you know like having an idea to oh the room would look better if we knocked down the wall and she would take a sledgehammer and go to it (laughs) and my father would come home and say oh yeah Helen that really worked well so it was a very encouraging of doing things but never would have called it creativity. So I don't even think I heard that word until I was in my doctoral program. The professor said, oh, you're so creative. And I was like, really? <laughs> wow. It just, it's interesting. Uh, but yeah, I think in terms of openness to ideas and trying
0: things it was probably creative, but a little different. Sure. So were you, did you go into psychology before you started writing or- did you play with writing first, or was it kind of a simultaneous thing?
1: Yeah, no, I went um, first for my master's in social work, and then uh, a PhD later. So I had to write, you know, like any act, you know, in terms of being a student. But I never saw myself as a writer um, or anything writing, create, you know, creative nonfiction or or fiction. Um, and it wasn't until uh, there was a program called New Directions in Writing that were set up for therapists, but I thought they had the most interesting topics. I was always a big reader and loved novels and writing that way. So I, I went to the program thinking, well, it interests me, but I don't have to write. I'll never write. <laughs> so I came at it very late. I, my first, I probably started writing um, in t- 2012, 2013. Uh, so I was a late latecomer, but fell in love with it once I
0: started. So you were sure you weren't going to have to write. And then you started and said, oh, hey.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. And you know, I, was a, I was a verbal storyteller. I love to tell stories and people would say, oh, you should write those down. And I said, well, I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer. And I think I'm not a traditional writer. I don't think it came naturally. You know, some people love prose and write beautiful sentences. I think I came at it from having strong feelings about an experience mm. and then wanting to try to write it down. And then the work came in learning, teaching myself and learning from others how to make it into something beautifully written. But it came, I think, in from the opposite direction than most writers.
0: So what did that look like as you were learning how to actually turn it into something that, you know, was beautiful, as you said? Um.
1: Well, the first piece I ever wrote and actually did get published was I came back from a trip to Costa Rica with my daughter and about finding an old school there and the art there. And it was just such a moving experience that I thought, could I try to write this down? Uh, It was right after I had finished New Direction. And so I've been around people who were writers. And so (laughs) I started writing it down and Turned to some friends and said, "What do you think?" And they liked it, and so I, it was just work and rework and revision. And I sent it to the Washington Post, and it was accepted. Wow! So I, I think if I didn't get that kind of quick response, because I, I didn't see myself as a writer, I probably would have given up too early. Which I always tell people when they tell me they can't write, to don't not to believe that. Um, and so from there I thought, oh, maybe I can do, you know, and so I kept working at it. So it was again a lot of perspiration. <laughs> first in first inspiration and then a lot of perspiration. So
0: Yeah, that tends to be how it goes, which I think right. as you say, a lot of a lot of people don't don't get that part and think that if it's not perfect on the first go, then oh, I'm not meant to do this and I'm not really around. Yeah. I should go, you know, play with sticks or something, you know, yeah instead. It's a shame because yeah. people can really, can, you know, if you understand that it's a process and it's going to take a little time and your first effort is not going to be perfect, your odds of sticking with it and coming up with something that you really like are so much better.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when
0: now I'm co-chair of New Directions and, you know, we get a lot
1: of students, they say, well, I sent it in for publication. It wasn't accepted. And I'm like, well, <laughs> keep sending, keep trying, don't stop because that tells you nothing. I don't believe how good
0: it is or not. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting when you, when you put it that way, like it not only doesn't tell you anything about that piece of writing, it doesn't tell you anything about whether or not you should be writing because you don't know why that piece was rejected. It may not have fit what they needed. It may be that they have got, you know, a, hundred submissions that are all about the same thing and they just happen to pick somebody else's even though they liked yours, they just liked this other person's more, it, you know, it it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you or what you wrote. There's all sorts of factors that could go into that rejection.
1: Right. And who's the reader? Who's the person who got it? You right. know, my first piece to the post must have had something that sparked that individual. It could have gone to five others there who would have said no, you know, so there's a lot of luck to it also.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So now you co-direct this program Mm -hmm. and I know you do a lot with writing and healing, which really fascinates me because I think, I mean, I know I've done a lot of, of journaling just on my own without necessarily, you know, using anybody's particular program or protocol and have found it really fascinating. And I'm very curious how, how they come together in your world.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, they come together in the first piece I wrote, um, I lost a child. And that, again, was motivated. That probably started me writing. And that was the Washington Post piece. So I knew for myself what writing did in terms of healing. And then um, when the pandemic started and I was seeing all my patients online and I was hearing the stories (laughs) from I had two patients, one a nurse practitioner, one a doctor in a hospital and hearing the stories I'm so sorry, of what they've been through. I, um, it was a, when the vaccine was just coming out, I was so struck that that's when they both sort of felt a collapse, like depression, hopelessness. It was like they had kept running, running, running. And it was like when hope was there, it hit them how despondent they were. And it's not like, I'm not a therapist to usually give advice in those ways, but I, on impulse, I said to the one the same day, well, have you tried, maybe just trying to write the experience because they said they had no words for what Mm. they felt. And they both said to me, oh, I'm not a writer, I don't write. And I said, it's not for anybody else. Just try to use your senses and put it into words. And, you know, I thought, well, I'll say it. I'll never hear anything about it. And the next week, both came back and said, that was so helpful. And I was really, you know, confirmed what I thought. And so sort of an impulse. I went into my husband who was working in the office. You know, we were all locked at home. And I told him it, and I said, you know, wouldn't it be great to have this for all these frontline workers? And he's sort of like, <clears throat> my father was as a kid, like, sure, you should do that. So I sent it out to all of my New Directions people, the idea and thing. Would anyone volunteer? And I heard from like a hundred something people immediately. Wow. And then I was like, uh oh, now I have to figure out how to how to do this. <laughs> and you know, it was just remarkable the the gift it was back because I mean those first couple of weeks I just worked which is my skill I'm a tenacious worker you know around the clock putting out a press release putting a website together and then you know even the website developer told me later you know I thought you were crazy people start these things and no one comes but somehow people were signing up one after the other and it, it was just so powerful from both the leaders ends and the um people joining I mean, even experiences like I was um, one woman, Alyssa Eli, who's a wonderful psychiatrist and leader of groups in Boston, who I met through the project. And she put in a group for 7 p.m. at night. And somehow it got listed as 7 a.m. And no one had a group at 7 a.m. And she's, she calls me and I said, I'm not a morning person. And I looked and there were two doctors from Africa. And I thought, wow, how did they hear? Oh, and another group was from the Sudan. So I was like, this is, so I volunteered to do the group. I'm a morning person. And we have continued now for two years with these same, uh, seven and six individuals. And it's been again, for me, a gift as they all say. Um, so anyway, it just expanded and expanded. And I guess I think of everything like that, like starting to write, you have to be able to just jump in and not know where it's going to go and just be open to possibility. And that that's sort of, I guess, back to that idea of creativity. You just have to be open to what might mm-hmm. come. And that's what happened with the project. And so it actually has moved on now. A group of women from Boston, uh, started by Ann Hallward, um, got in touch with the uh, uh, Ahmed Kamal from the Asian University for Women, needed groups for all these refugee women who had no, they'd lost their home and trauma. And these groups were then used by this committee and they lead groups in Bangladesh right now um, for all the young women there with leaders, therapists from this country. And again, it's, it just keeps multiplying. So it's,
0: wow. uh, Yeah, that's great. From one random question that you threw out during (laughs) lockdown. Yes, all right. That's fantastic. What kind of feedback do you get? You
1: know, I get emails from people, you know, saying, you know, they started as groups, three meetings, um, because we didn't want to overload these frontline workers. And I would get emails saying, this has changed my life. And I'd be like, really, (laughs) you know, but it really did. And, um, I I heard from one woman, I wish I could remember her name because we are still in dialogue, but she was an ER doctor out in um, California who was in the group. And she wrote me saying it changed her life. And she actually left emergency medicine and was going to write, which I was both going, "Uh uh-oh, I hope hope that was a good choice, but it clearly has been for her. So it it just had a profound effect on many. Um, And actually not long ago, um, Room, which is an online journal, put out a, a book of ours of writing from the things they wrote and all some of the writing from the frontline workers, which again was very powerful. So it it gave a lot of comfort and meaning to many and that's what we hoped for.
0: So. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Do you give them any kind of direction as to what to write or, you know, like try writing a poem or just write an essay or is it really free form?
1: Free form, the groups are set up, um, you know, we give ideas for prompts. Uh, the and then from there, you know, I always encourage the leaders to lead them in whatever suits them. So some are poets and might use poetry as a prompt. Some have used drawings and painting, you know, whatever you think. But there are prompts about, you know, the first one is usually around, you know, where do you find your comfort? Because we didn't want to jump in first with a um, uh, you know, a traumatic kind of tell us your worst experience. And those ideas came from our initial trainer, uh, Sarah Tabor, who led the training at first um, and had wonderful ideas and prompts. Um, and then the second meeting might be more about tell us about a tough experience. And they would write, we ask them to shut off their Zoom for 10 minutes. write, And then they come back and talk about it. And a big part of the group is not just the writing, but the sharing with others. And what was so meaningful is these groups. You would have doctors, aides, rabbis, chaplains, technicians, all in the same group of every race, age, and it it didn't matter. They came together so beautifully, like the group I lead now with Anne Adelman. We have two doctors from Africa. We have a hospice worker. We have a, a pharmacist all over the country um, meeting, and it, it it's just beautiful to see people sharing their stories and really making meaning and friendships out of these groups.
0: It sounds to me like potentially these groups are a place where, you know, you mentioned doctors and aides and nurses and rabbis and whatever, where, where, where there's a level of appreciation and respect for what they each do that they might not have had without a setting like this. Is that, is that guess correct? That's,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's again it's hard to describe watching the interaction between people of such different cultures and experience and education and completely respectful and learning from the other um so it is it's the effects have multiplied in terms of what we didn't even expect um so it's it's a great you know and it's being carried on as i said at the asian university there's such use for writing as a way for healing in so many different settings
0: yeah, have you thought about going beyond the medical profession with it?
1: We did um, some for teachers after the pandemic. Um, you know, I don't know if they were just too—they didn't catch on the way. You know, we led a lot of groups. Um, there's also a project in Northern Virginia called the Dreamers, which is for young um, immigrants who uh, who aren't citizen yet who are going off to college and did uh, start some group there for these young people on how to make connections. So I think it can be used in lots of settings. And I've been asked by, so, you know, when the war started in the Ukraine, I got contact from some of the state part. could I do these groups for Ukraine? <laughs> I mean, I was like, I'm one person, Ukraine, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of laughed, like, I don't know how to do that. So, you know, I think I've probably reached my max on how far, but I think others are carrying it
0: on in different ways. and.
1: I would encourage others to use it as a model.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, I you hear stories about, you know, some, someone who just had one random thought that turned into something, but you don't often get to hear the behind the scenes story. So it's yeah. it, it it must kind of blow your mind when you stop and think about it. Yeah,
1: it 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 has. And again, it I feel I've been given as much as I gave in starting it, and that's always, uh, you know, I'm profoundly moved by the stories I hear. And
0: yeah, sure. So, do you participate in the group as well as leading it? Do you do your own writing with the group?
1: Um, you know, some of our leaders do. A few times I have, um, but often when I shut it off, I'm often talking to my co-leader about what else mm. we're doing next and things like that. But I've heard, I've heard certainly a lot of our leaders do the writing with student, not students, the, um, frontline workers.
0: Cause I was wondering if, if it's changed how you approach your writing.
1: You know, I've never, I think cause I came to writing so late, I was never a natural writer. So all these people who keep journals and things like that, I never did because I never craved writing that way. So I come from writing. I have to start with a, something either I've experienced or felt. And the feeling stays with me a long time where I then decide that must be have something powerful to it. And then I go to write it. So, but I don't just write every day for the, the need to journal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's okay. Not everybody is a journaler. Not everybody, no. a, a, you know, put it all on paper and see what yeah. happens type. And that's totally okay. I mean, I kind of go, hot and cold on it myself so yeah you know yeah. it's what works and
1: i you know i always think i come more at writing like a detective like i get the idea and then i'm looking you know it's like i find words out in the world and then pull them in versus them generating from just language
0: that's such an interesting image finding words and pulling them in
1: <laughs> no.
0: yeah yeah words from random things. I'll be
1: listening to the radio and I hear a word. I'm like, that's the word I needed (laughs) when I go back and, but you know, it's more, I like, I feel like I find them than it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, but I think maybe as a therapist too, it comes from stories and things that have a lot of emotion.
0: Yeah. I mean, you must see a lot in terms of the power in story in general, whether it's written down or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've come to see therapy a lot as changing people's narrative, Mm. that people get very locked into a narrative of who they are and why they are that way. And it doesn't mean you could just tell someone, oh, change the story, but through therapy and exploring what is the meaning of the story, the unconscious motivation for it, then people suddenly can see something in a brand new way and it really changes takes time. But I think and the, and the story can change, which is fascinating. We think memory is so accurate, but mm-hmm. memories change. After therapy, you hear people say, gosh, I remembered it this way. Now I know it's clearly it happened this way. Or that's why siblings have a different memory of the same event. So I think therapy is a lot about narrative and narrative change.
0: Yeah. And, and it's interesting too. I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking there are so many things that I've read, you know, that someone else has written down and it, and, and just in reading their perspective, it's changed mine on something. So, right. you know, it's, it's fascinating to me how, how all of that goes together, you know, the memory and the language and the experience and what's, what's really true. I mean, you hear about right. studies of like, you know, eyewitnesses who, don't get details correct, even though we've all been told that eyewitness testimony is like the best thing ever, kind of makes you wonder what's really true. You know, what do you remember that, that actually is the truth and, and how much of it is just your perception, the way it felt at the time, as opposed to the reality of it?
1: Right. It's all, there's difference, you know, I'll tell patients is true between fact and truth. Truth is emotional and it is true. And I do that with couples trying to let them, you know, when they debate each other and I'll say, but can you believe it is true? Even I'll use the example of a thermostat. You know, your house is set to 72. Your husband says it's hot. You say it's cold. Both are true. The fact is it's 72, (laughs) (laughs) But, but the truth is it could be hot or cold, um, and, I mean, in my own life, I've seen so many memories shift when I learn a new fact. The, even before my eyes, I can see the memory corrected. And even though I would have swore it was the other memory. And the power of that is',
0: is very strong. It's wild to think that that's even possible, yeah, yeah,
1: oh, when you see it happen, it it's it's yeah. accurate. I always I, when I teach, I'll use the example of my daughter when she was. I always had the memory of her dancing at a wedding when she was little. And I pictured her as clear as day. And I would have everything I hoped, you know, that she was dancing around the floor. And then I ran into my cousin and she told me the date of the wedding. And I saw my daughter was 11 months old. I knew she didn't walk <laughs> till 13. And suddenly the memory was just as clear as day. She was sitting on the floor and dancing. Oh, wow. But my memory, your memory updates the things you know of the person later. So of course, her is a walking child, but both memories were just as visually clear to me. And it was powerful. I had proof in that case to see my memory had been changed. So.
0: Yeah. It, it, this is reminding me that, that not too long ago, I had an experience that was kind of similar where I realized that something couldn't possibly have happened, I think when it, did. It was, it was date related. I can't remember now exactly what it was, but, but I just kind of stood there and I, and in my case, I kept thinking, but that can't be right. And yet I'm (laughs) looking at the date and I'm going, but that can't be right. How did I get this so wrong? How, you know, and, and that it, it did not, it did not self-correct in my head. Would have been easier if it had, (laughs) I was really left going, I'm so confused now because this is clearly correct over here, and yet that can't be right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And when you see it, it's disturbing sometimes to your mind to go, wait yeah. a minute.
1: That doesn't fit. And so I think, yeah, people who rely on memory as fact, it's, it's problematic. Because um, our mem- memories are always updated by who we are in the present remembering so in many ways memory is really about the present than the past so who we are emotionally affects what we remember
0: so do you use writing in association with memory that like in that way is it is it a useful tool to help people sort out what was what was true what was or even to get away from the idea of this is true and and more into something beneficial rather than being stuck in that, that idea? Yeah.
1: I mean, that's one of the things I use when I see something happen in my own life that relates to memory or something powerful. And, um, I then use writing as a way to process it. I had a really interesting experience of that. Um, I had gone to see a movie with my husband and friends, uh, called when the, um, when the garden was eaten, which I, actually wrote about this in an essay in a book, but it was um, when uh, the Knicks won uh, the series um, back, I didn't know when, but a big, when Ben Bradley played, and the movie was wonderful. It was a documentary because it was the first time black and white players came together and really joined. And we're watching this movie and just at the penultimate moment when the um, Knicks win, the audience cheered. It was so moving. I was not about, I never watched basketball, but I was moved. But suddenly I felt a punch in my gut of grief and I could not figure out this was a happy moment. And it was made no sense to me. And when we left the restaurant, I said to my husband and friends, what year was that? Does anyone know when that happened? And everyone's guessing 1969, 1970, 1971. And I Googled Knicks win, you know, the uh, tournament, whatever they called it again. I don't know, basketball. And it was May, um, May 5th, 1970. Well, that was the night before my mother died in a car accident. And it must have been, at the, my mother's accident was at the bottom of the fold, the picture of the crash. And the top must have been Knicks win, but I still have no memory of the Knicks winning. I have, I have no knowledge of the Knicks, nothing. But yet in that moment, my body had registered that memory, but it wasn't like I got the memory back because I still didn't remember it, but I'm certain because that gut punch, I never even usually feel as an adult about my mother. So that's another one of those powerful, how the body remembers moment.
0: that's so, amazing.
1: Yeah. So that one I had to write about because I had to process like what was that. But if I hadn't gotten the date, I would have never had any idea why that meant anything
0: to me. Right. So. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, again, that's the kind of thing that I've heard stories about. So you know, but it it doesn't really seem real till you hear it from someone who's experienced it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And once I have the once, that's what makes me write. Then I think that is such a You know, powerful moment and might help others. And so then I'll write it. Um, though, but they're usually about memory in some form or the other, even if I'm not consciously thinking about memory, Mm -hmm. but everything we do, even our idea of future, we don't have a future without memory. You know, they do studies on people and, uh, someone who's had either some kind of brain seizure or tumor who loses any kind of memory. They can't envision a future. If you ask them to picture future, they're not able to. Um, so how they're so linked, um, our memory and our future.
0: I mean, that kind of makes sense because your future is sort of imagining things that haven't happened yet. You know, it's it's like imagining the memory you haven't had yet.
1: Right, and you have to have some
0: experience to know
1: what it is you would imagine. Right. So, yeah, so memory is really about the present, yeah, and combining that's moment between past and future. Wow.
0: So, when you started writing more for yourself i mean you've mentioned that you write about things that you think might help others and things that you need to process i mean how how did how did you really aside from i wrote this one off thing and i sent it off to the washington post like what how how did you form this this more serious writing identity for yourself
1: yeah um well after that washington post and then um when i would teach in um, doctoral programs or people training to be therapists, I would always use personal stories because I always thought they made them the most accessible. So my first idea for a book was to use sort of memoir stories and then have the story follow with an explanation from a psychological viewpoint, but trying to use everyday language. Because I found when I would teach students, you would tell them something sort of like medical students, they'd go, oh no, do I do that? Like it was something bad. And I was trying to normalize it. Um, So that was the first book, and I did that with two colleagues, Ann Adelman and Catherine Anderson, because I was such a novice to writing. I thought, could I do a whole book? And Mm -hmm. um, so we did that. And then from there, did other psychology books. And at the same time, I was publishing a lot of op-eds and personal essays. Um, And I was trying to write a memoir of my childhood about my mother dying and it wasn't working as a memoir and friends who would read it would say this would be a great novel and I'd say oh but I I've I've never written a piece of fiction I don't know how to write fiction and I kept working at it and then someone else would read it and say this should be a novel and I go same story (laughs) and then finally one day I said okay why don't I try um and so I started trying to write it as fiction which was a big learning curve (laughs) I worked you know, many years on how to do it, because it was very hard to give up the story I knew to make it mm. fiction. Um, but I did, and last year it came out as a novel. And so that was uh, a, a big moment and very exciting to make that transition. I don't, I don't know if I could do it again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was very, very hard. You probably um, could, but that's very interesting, the idea of letting go of the story that you know as yours in order to turn it into fiction. How, how did you manage that?
1: Well, it was hard because, again, I was someone who always based on, well, this happened or did it not, you know, at least what I thought happened. And I actually, um, I found this wonderful writer, Bill Rohrbach, who's up in Maine, who I would use sort of as a teacher and I would send him things and he'd go, but well, Carrie, what else could have happened? Then I'd be like, but this happened, you know, and mm. he pushed me, pushed me to try to use more imagination with it, which has never been you know, part of how I've used it. Um, And so I would just rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. I I mean, like anyone who's written a novel, just, but at least I had a starting place, which now I've learned most novelists come from something, an experience they've had. I don't know how you could write so deeply on something without knowing it. But I mean, I guess there's novelists who get so good at it, they can really create a whole story. I don't think that's something I could do, but so. That's how it became a novel. <laughs>
0: yeah. So so in the process of reimagining it, did that change your experience and your, your sense of what actually happened?
1: You know, in that case, no, because I think why it wasn't working as a memoir is, in my mind, memoir, you have to be really struggling with something about what happened to you and trying to work it out. And the death of my mother, I had... I dealt with many years earlier. I wasn't in any crisis about it. It was more even some just funny stories about what it was like, you know, four siblings without a mom. And so it wasn't working as a memoir. So I don't think um, by writing it, whereas when I do write memoir a person, i say I am working something out. But I think the fact that it wasn't working was there was nothing I was trying to figure out about it. So it worked better as a as fiction because I did want to capture, I guess, the therapist in me. I see a lot of kids and adolescents and who've lost people and I understand well the psychology of what goes on in a child's mind. So in this family, I had the novel kids from two to 13 and you get to really see all the experiences of what it's like to lose a parent at these different ages, how a child thinks about it. and I also wanted to present a family where there's a lot of resilience. You know, so much today is about trauma, trauma, everything, people, everyone's traumatized. And I wanted to show a family that go through something very, very terrible, but that they go on and, you know, thrive and love each other. And and good things happen, too, um, despite the grief.
0: Yeah, so it sounds almost like it's a it's a how to for everybody. Who's in that situation, whether it's an adult or the child or a friend of the family, but written up as a novel, which is really pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's nice to say it that way. Yeah, I think adults like it, too, whether you've lost someone or not, because, you know, it Yeah, sort of has a child um, narrator, but I'm uh, not equivalent, but like sort of to kill a mockingbird, like a spunky main daughter. Mm-hmm. But you can relate to the story in that kind of way.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking that, you know, having the the therapy background, it must make it and and you may not be able to compare because you have always had the therapy <laughs> background, but but it must make it easier is probably not the right word, but but you bring to it an insight about how people tick that somebody else who's sitting down to write a novel is kind of going on their instinct and their own experience as opposed to an actual background in working with people and how how they react to things and why.
1: Yeah, that's what I would hope. I guess the risk can be is someone with the background can make it sound too intellectual or use Mm -hmm. language, like describing things, which even when I teach therapists how to write, I try to get away from jargon. And because sometimes I was always a big novel reader, I would be blown away by the depth of psychological understanding of some novelists who never said, the ones who are really great, I used to think well they did it better than therapists in writing because therapists would write you know just technical and you you come away not knowing the person <laughs> you hear these words so I always thought I learned a lot from novelists about how to just show a person and capture who they are in depth and the great writers do that
0: beautifully too so yeah that's a really good point because I think when you're when you're trying to convey something in a novel you do run that risk of almost trying too hard, you know, however that comes out for you, whether it's right. being too technical or, you know, really hammering the point when you right. don't need to, you know, that kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that, that's kind of the danger for anyone. I think, you know, I, I don't think that you can really sit down and say like, I'm imagining I'm thinking back to all of those high school classes about like what's, what's the setting and what's the plot and what's the theme, you know? And, and then a lot of kids are, after they go through all of these pieces of how a story works are told, okay, now it's your turn to write a story. And, and, you know, it, it can be so easy to be like, you know, what's my theme? What am, you know, what am I doing? And I think a lot of the time, unless you, like in your case, this doesn't really apply so much. But if if you really sit down and try to say, I am writing about this. This is my theme. And I want to make sure that my theme comes through. In my experience, your theme is going to come through whether you even know what it is or not. That's
1: right. And I love that when that happens. I mean, that's when well, I find that when I write something, it's so amazing. And I have no idea that I'm trying to say that. And then I look and go, oh, wow, it's right there. But I, you know, it just came through. And that's always when it's better when you didn't even, you know, see it coming and you're, you're surprised. If you're surprised, that's a good sign. The writing is good. And I, I actually think the same in therapy. I love when I'm as surprised as my patient, when we come up onto something new. And I always think a good session is when the patient or I, neither of us know who thought of the idea. (laughs) <laughs> that it just was co-created that it was just there yeah you know and I think that's how the writing should feel it just sort of happens and that did happen in the novel a lot you know just the writing all of a sudden I'd be surprised at what I came up with and how it fit with something else and so I always think of surprise as such an important aspect of everything we do and and have to be open to surprise the novelty to something new um and I think therapists and maybe writers who get blocked, I think therapists who, who they feel sure they know what's coming are not doing good work. They're not really just letting it happen. They have a theory and they put the theory on it. And maybe writers, too, if they're certain they know where it's going, are blocked then because they can't let the
0: character or the patient find something new. Yeah, that's such an interesting way to look at it. And I think that's right. You you get too too caught up in your own idea of it and and i think i think a writing project is a lot like a kid you know Mm -hmm. you you think you know what it is (laughs) but you really don't you know the people who set out to make sure that their kid is a doctor or a lawyer or gets into the school or whatever I don't think they're letting the kid figure out who they are. You know, they're not letting the kid be the kid. And I think I think a piece of writing is often the same way. You think you know what it is or what it's going to be when you start. But a lot of the time you find out you're wrong, that it turns out it wants to be this other thing that if you tried to force it to be the first thing, it really wouldn't be any good. It's way better being the thing it wants to be.
1: Right. It, well, it's the same as I said with my novel, Meet the Moon. Whereas I was trying to write it as a memoir, I was trying and write, and it wasn't working. And people kept saying, "I think it's fiction." I, you know, finally, when I let it go to fiction, it
0: it did work. But I was resistant, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We get caught up in that kind of stuff, and and that's also the the idea of memoir versus novel is the interesting idea that that comes up a lot in a piece of writing where. It, Whatever it is you think you're trying to do, it's not working. It's not working. And then you suddenly figure out, oh, I've structured this all wrong. This part needs to go up at the beginning and this part needs to go down here. And it's not actually an essay. It's more like a dialogue. And it's, you know, whatever it is that that you finally realize it wants to be. And as soon as you change it, it's like the gates open and the choir sings and, you know, yeah. <laughs> it suddenly right. works. But
1: as a novice, that was first so hard for me to do because it took so much work to put that little bit of writing together oh, when yeah. someone would say, well, throw it away. I'd be like, throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't bear it. And now I'm more I'm looser about it. I can say, OK, that's not working. In the beginning, it was you know, very hard to do.
0: <laughs> that's interesting because I wouldn't tell people to throw it away. I'd be like, put this version aside. You can always come back to it. Well, I always
1: save it. Yes. Throw it away. I mean, put it, I I save everything. I label it. And because sometimes you go back and you find something, oh yeah, that was really good there. But you have to just let it go for a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have to let it go completely for a while and come back to it later. It's like, you know, I remember the first time I tried to read All Creatures Great and Small when I was in ninth grade in high school and I just could not do it. And then I picked right. it up again three years later and I raced through it like it was the greatest thing ever because it just wasn't the right time. And I think writing is the right. same way, you know? You want to write this, but it's not the right time to write it yet. So yeah. don't give it up. Just set it aside. And when it starts to call to you again, go see what happens. And maybe it'll be the right time. Maybe it won't quite, but you'll find something new. You never know. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So so you had mentioned that you were playing with a psychological thriller and I'm curious to hear about that if you're still if you're well, still Well that's one of those
1: I have I have put aside wow. and I, I I was struggling with it just wasn't coming together and what I'm working on now which again I'm not sure will work is I love humor in writing and I love um sort of uh, David Sedaris a personal essay that has humor and I have lots of stories. My family and I use humor as our way that we see everything in the world. And we have a lot of funny stories and I'm trying to write those as personal essays. But again, the struggle comes in. It's like some of them feel like you take an, an- anecdote, you know, and can you make it into a, um, an anecdote? Yeah, <laughs> make it into a story or not, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so that's what I'm working on now, family stories and um, humor and, you know, emotional meaning and makeup essays. So we'll see if how that goes. But that's what I'm
0: working how, on. Now. How's it been going so far?
1: Um, well, I sent the first one out. And I haven't heard and I'm probably too quick to judge like, oh, if they like it, it's good. It's not. Um, so I, I don't know. Some I feel. I, again, I'd say once you're so immersed in it, it's very hard to hard to judge if they're Absolutely. working. Um, and uh, I'm even trying to think of, uh, you know, things that, yeah, how to make the, what pulls them to the bigger story? What is the storyline beyond the funny moment? And that's really challenging how to do that. So a few of them I think are working, but we'll see.
0: So you mentioned sending one out. Do you, because it sounded like you were thinking about this as a collection. Is it something that, that you're going to send out as individual pieces and then put together as a collection or did I completely misunderstand?
1: Yeah, that's what I would think. Um, because, um, I was for, I have an agent and I'm just fortunate to know that a, you know, to sell a group of essays as a book is just very challenging. So I think first, and plus I want to see if they work well. So I think by sending some out, you get some feedback. Um, And then I imagine if you get enough out in the world, you know, even four or five of them that say, oh, these are coming together as a story, um, that then it could maybe work as a book. But these are all long-term challenges, you know, but I pictured it, you know, um, sort of that's life. Just love, loss, and laughter, you know, all just experiences of life, but even the stories of loss and grief in our family have a lot of humor to them. You know, we can, we find humor in moments. Um, uh, You know, one of them is called Death at a Funeral, and it's about my husband and I had gone to see the movie Death at a Funeral, and it says you'll die laughing as you Mm -hmm. go in, the sign. And within watching it, my husband and I, who love humor, we laugh a lot, we started watching, and he tossed back a milk dud at a very funny scene. And I thought, oh, he's going to laugh so hard, I'll spit it out, so I won't look at him. So I kept watching, and then I didn't hear him laugh anymore. And I looked over, and he's turning gray. And I realized he was choking, but he was so choked so seriously choking that he wasn't even moving or making sounds. And this is in Bethesda, Maryland, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, outside D.C., a high-end suburb um, in a fancy movie theater. And when I stood up and yelled, is there a doctor in the house? It was like, boom, 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 the whole place (laughs) came down, you know, and and along with a few lawyers, you know. Wow. And someone heimliched him. And so it's all about loss, but it's also about the relationship with my husband and sort of what it's like. So I'm trying to capture both in that story at the same time as finding humor and near death. But, you know, because then we go in the he had to get an ambulance and oxygen and we um, we're in there and he knew I've had some serious losses. So he knew I was upset. So he's in the back pulling his oxygen off, asking, was I OK? <laughs> and, and the. And the driver kept looking over like, boy, she must be quite a bitch. You know, he's worried about her, you know? And it was just and he and I started laughing because we both knew what was what was going on in the scene, you know, because it looked like because oh, wow. I, I kept I kept going, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this, you know. Um, so it was both very funny and you know, this also moving tragic to what it connected to. So those are the kind of things I don't know if that explains it. I'm trying to weave.
0: Yeah, that must be an interesting thing to have written about because you have, you know, that balance of you go to the funny movie, you're expecting to laugh at the movie, and then this other thing happens, and yet, you know, it's terrifying, but you're also laughing at it. I mean, that is is an interesting emotional balance to try to write. Well, that's
1: the challenge. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to... How do you hit the humor, but how do you not hit it in a way that misses it? And, And how do you not hit people over the head with loss in a way that's, so uh, that's why we'll see how they work, but that's what I've been trying to do in these pieces. So.
0: Wow, that's, hmm. that's impressive. But they're fun. Well, and if they're fun, I think if they're fun for the person who's writing them, they're lo- way more likely to be fun for the person who's reading them. You know, I mean, you yeah. you pick up on that one way or another as a reader, you know, that the there's that whole sense of of amusement and lightheartedness or excitement depending on on what you're what you're writing and and if you let that yeah. come through you, it comes through on the page.
1: That's what I think you have to have. Right. You want to have the, I think any piece that works well for me has to have some feeling that comes through, not just the beautiful writing, but uh, for me, it's emotion.
0: And, uh, yeah, I, I I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that the therapist part of you informs the writing that way, that there are certain things that you really want to make sure you do or even don't do as you're writing a piece.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes students, you know, will write a piece about trauma and they write in a way that just sort of, you know, annihilates the person reading it. They don't realize the impact and how to temper it in a way that you're getting the meaning across, but without wanting the person to put the writing down, you know, like, oh, I can't bear that. That's always the line, too, of how to make it bearable. And maybe humor helps with that. That's why I've always loved David Sedaris. Um, because he beautifully does that, of tells, you know, moving stories with a lot of power, but he makes you laugh as you're doing them. And, and again, I think people can see themselves more readily and he always makes himself the brunt of it, which I've always done that with my humor pieces. I never make fun of others or I have no desire to, I always will make myself the, the person who's done the ditzy thing or done the, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the funny, funny things.
0: And that's an interesting thing to do too. Because, you know, it's it's not like you are the only one on the planet who's ever done the ditzy thing. Right. And yet, you know, yeah, it makes sense. You don't want to you don't want to punch down. You don't want to, you know, take on somebody who doesn't deserve it. And so the only safe target in many circumstances is you. And frankly, we've all done things that deserve to be laughed at. So, you know, but but it's still I would imagine if you do too much of that, then it. if you're not careful, you can turn it into, you know, kind of beating up on yourself a little bit at the same time. So that's an interesting line to walk too. Right.
1: Yeah. Which I don't think I'm doing that because I see these as all human things. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I'm not like, oh, criticizing myself. I'm like, look, this is what we do. Um, and I've carried that over in my psychology writing. I don't write about patients anymore. I mean, I'll write about a patient in a generic little story way, but I don't write details, cases about patients anymore. Because I feel like if I can't make myself vulnerable and the center of a piece, then I shouldn't be doing that with patients. So I almost always use myself as the example and um, not about particular patients.
0: I think there's value in that too, because a lot of people see therapists as like the people who know everything, you know, and, and so demystifying that can't be a bad thing.
1: Yeah. That's what I think to see. We're all, we all have the same, you know, struggles, worries, um, and ways, different ways we handle it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And a lot of the things we do are funny, even if we don't realize them at the time.
1: Oh, and you have to be able to laugh at yourself. I mean, that's what I think with anything. You have to be able to, you know, find what's funny in a difficult situation
0: it makes and it a the whole best lot part of
1: it. resilience. Yeah. With resilience. I think one of the lead things of resilience is humor, being able to step back and laugh at it.
0: something. Yeah. So if somebody who's listening wants to start doing some kind of, of writing to get to know themselves better or to process something that happened to them, do you have suggestions on how they should go about that?
1: Yeah, well, what I would say is um, take the experience, and the easiest for a beginning person is to think of your five senses. And I always tell people in our groups that the more detail you put in, um, the more powerful will be the processing of it. So, you know, when I would talk to the doctors about an event happening, you know, they could say, well, the patient came in, they were sick and they died, versus, okay, well, what was it? What did the stethoscope feel like in your hand? Mm -hmm. Was the metal cold? What did you smell when you were in there? And it was very moving to watch people describe like the smell of their latex gloves, which they never thought about before. And then some started write about how they associated it with COVID and even had trouble putting them on. So, you know, what did they smell? What did they see? What did they hear? So I think that's a good starting place if you're wanting to write about an experience is to just try to go back, put yourself back in the memory and use as many of your senses as possible, I think is a, the best starting place.
0: That's so interesting. And then see where it goes and build, yeah. you know,
1: associations. Um, what, what connects to what? And let yourself, let your mind wander. You know, and when people get stuck, I'll say, say they read back a piece and there's, you know, a powerful few words, I'll say, all right, start with those few words, just go with that. And even I do that with my own writing and it'll shock me when I let myself do that, that it opens up the piece in a way that I didn't, you know, we tend to close down with a few words, but so to find some phrases that meant something and then, well, just take that. And where does that lead you?
0: Yeah, I think there are clues in the writing itself if you pay attention when you read through it again. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I like the idea of starting off with the senses because we tend not to, you know, we get so much sensory information, but we discount and ignore an awful lot of it. And some of that's by necessity. If you paid attention to every single thing you heard, you'd, no. you'd be overloaded in short order, you know? Right. But, but yeah, we, we don't, we don't notice was the stethoscope cold you know, don't yeah,
1: notice the smell. right, what it feel like.
0: Right,
1: yeah. What, what were you hearing? Was it the beep, beep, beep of the, you know, this is with the frontline workers, but whatever it is, it'll help you deepen the story, I think, to get all the, and I'll do that with my own writing. I'll notice, oh, I have nothing about smells. You know, what was I, you know, what, what were they smelling in that scene? What was there? So. Yeah.
0: Notice the senses and then find the clues in what you wrote. Mm-hmm. That seems like pretty darn good advice to me. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming and talking with me today. I think this has been really interesting, and I hope that people are inspired to sit down and play with a little bit of their own writing in a way that they might not have been before.
1: I do too. Well, Thank you so much for having me on. It was fun talking together.
0: That's our show. Thanks so much to Carrie Maloista for joining me and to you for listening. Please leave a review for this episode. There is a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when writing helped you make sense of an experience. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thank you so much. If this episode resonated with you, or if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, join me at The Spark on Substack as we form a community that supports and celebrates each other's creative courage. It's free, and it's also where I'll be adding programs for subscribers and listeners. The link is in your podcast app, so sign up today. See you there, and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners.